You're listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast, where you'll learn how you can use direct-to-fan marketing strategies to grow your fan base and generate income from your music with no record label, radio, airplay, touring, or press. And I'm your host, John Ojaka. All right, John Ojaka here, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast. I believe this makes it episode number 28, and uh, this is going to be part two of the, I, I don't know what I'm going to call this thing, but the, the sort of how, air quotes here, how I got my, uh, how I got my record deal story. This is the, uh, the other side of, of the mountain, so to speak. In the last episode, uh, I shared the story of my record deal. If you haven't listened to that, then you should definitely go back and listen to that before you listen to this. Um, it was said, at least by the trade papers, and that's kind of all I have to go on, that I once landed the largest new artist signing in history. Uh, that was way back in 1999. I uh, later released uh, an album for Warner Brothers and another one independently. And as that, as that track record might suggest, that initial record deal, as big as it was and as as good as it looked like my future was, or as bright as it looked like my future was going to be, things didn't turn out the way that I had ultimately hoped. So, um, in, and you heard how I got there. Now we're going to talk about kind of what, what happened after the, the record deal. And this is a story that is probably and somewhat sadly familiar to many musicians, probably many listening to this. Um, so at the very least, this will be a cautionary tale, but at the end of the day, this is how um this is how I got to where I am now it was it was that experience with that that uh record deal and those that followed uh and and the, the sort of frustrating aspects of that experience that ultimately led to music marketing manifesto um i i uh, as as we'll talk about a bit more and as I've mentioned elsewhere it was my frustration with the major label game and really the music industry in general that ultimately led to me taking a bit of a hiatus for a while from the music industry and building an online business and then uh, doing quite well with that as, as I developed my skills as an online marketer and then ultimately returning to the music industry back in 2009 to introduce an, a, what at the time was a new form of marketing to uh to independent artists and it's really taken off and spread and uh and and I think I think we've seen a, a real change in the way that independent musicians uh, market their music and at least for my part in that in that collective journey uh it was it was that major record label experience not going the way that I wanted it uh I wanted it to that ultimately uh, led led to all of that happening. So enough rambling. Um, Scott James is again going to join me in just a moment. Uh, he was on the last interview. He's been on, uh, or he's on the last episode. He's been in the last few to basically just kind of um, add another voice to the mix and and make it a little less lonely. So I don't have to sit there and just kind of talk to myself for the entire show, but also because I can't really interview myself. And it was Scott that urged me to uh, to tell this story. So he's going to join us again to help coax that story uh, out of me and ultimately share it with you guys. So I think that's all that's really uh, necessary in terms of housekeeping. Uh, if you do enjoy this show, then uh, as I said uh, in the past, please do me a favor, head on over to uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to this this show, leave a rating and review. Um, and as something else that I kind of hinted at in the intro to the last episode, I've recently started a marketing agency, which is, is pretty exciting, 
to me, it's called DTFI, that's Direct to Fan International, and this is basically a complete done-for-you solution for people who uh, have perhaps gone through Music Marketing Manifesto, see the value in those strategies, but don't want to do the actual work. Uh, we're now offering done-for-you campaigns and marketing solutions. Uh, the agency is brand new. If this is something that interests you, just get in touch. Hit the contact tab on any page of my website. Uh, or websites, or send an email to john at musicmarketingmanifesto.com uh, and ask about the agency, and, and I'll send you some info, and we can perhaps set up a call and go from there. Uh, but with that uh, that boring stuff out of the way, we're going to take a very quick break, and when we return, Scott James will be on the line, and uh, we're going to tell you the other side uh, of this this story, this journey, the 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 uh, coming down off that mountain <laughs> sort of sort of part of the story. All right, back in a sec. You're listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto Podcast. All right, we are back. Uh, And once again, Scott James is on the line. Scott, thanks for being here again. How are you? I'm good, man. How are you doing? I am good. I'm good. Uh, wired up on coffee and ready to go. So um, I don't know, Scott. You you got uh, you got control of the wheel. You're the interviewer. I'm the interviewee. What do you want to know? All right. Well, let's do it. So last uh, conversation we had, part one, we talked about how you started off being flat broke uh, in Hollywood all the work you put into it uh, to uh, make a name for yourself and get a deal and uh, getting that deal and some of the things that kind of foreshadowed, you know, the stuff that you teach now. Um, <clears throat> so let's um, let's kind of go go back a little bit just to kind of set the table for this. Cause I, I've heard some stories from you um, just to to uh, talk about the impact that this whole thing had on your life up to this point here in the discussion uh, and just like how broke you were. <laughs> going into this record deal and then how your life changed once the money was in the bank. Yeah. So, so if, you know, if again, if anybody missed it, they really should go back and listen to that before listening to this. But, you know, I dropped some big numbers. The, the deal was worth, uh, if you add the publishing and all that, it was worth a couple million bucks. Like, uh, it was, it was a, it was financially speaking a, a pretty successful situation. Um, but yeah, prior to that, I was, I was poor. <laughs> like I was, I put, How every, poor were you? I, I, I put everything that I had into this. And I said it in the last episode, but I, I busted my ass. If I'm good, if, if, you know, if I can give myself credit for any part of that success, it was just uh, tenacity. It was just working really, really hard and not accepting sort of failure as, as a, as an option. But, but yeah, man, I was poor. I lived, lived in a little, apartment on Gordon Street, um, which last I was in LA was still pretty bad. You know, it's 400 bucks a month. Um, I, where is I, Gordon Street? It's down. Remember where the uh, spaghetti factory um, used to be? Just kind of literally. Before my time. Uh, no, it wasn't. Spaghetti factory is not that spaghetti old. Spaghetti factory? Oh. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't uh, But it has been got, but past uh, Ocean Ways there on um on Sunset Boulevard, uh, just like one or two blocks down, um, 
fuck is ocean ways yeah. did i just swear i think i swore <laughs> <laughs> is ocean is ocean ways still there or did actually i hear that that got knocked down so i don't know it's uh, down yeah. it's a crappy part of town right in hollywood um okay. but uh yeah it was it was uh it was a it was a very sort of there was the gordon street gang down there and it was known for having some trouble um but i, I had a little 400 dollar uh, uh month apartment i had and this is actually a little gross but like cavities so bad like i had a i remember a tooth like just fell apart like cracked (laughs) (laughs) fell fell literally out of my mouth had no money to fix my teeth i had holes in my shoes my only pair of boots were so worn down there were holes in the bottom and if it rained i got wet feet uh, for the day (laughs) i had a pillowcase become so tattered and old that it just tore on me and I didn't have the money to get a, a another pillowcase and and I just went without a pillowcase for however <laughs> however long that was uh, but I still lived a pretty fun life I put all the energy I had into sort of being being the man you know as a club promoter so I was always out I got you know free or next to free drinks and I remember uh, Billy uh, Billy Burke who's an artist that I mentioned I've done some campaigns for him and he's a very good friend and I remember him sort of saying something back in the day you know if you want to be the man you kind of got to act like the man which in that context of that conversation meant not mooching off of people and actually picking up the tab sometimes so you know if I had money I wasn't buying sheets or fixing my teeth or 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 buying new shoes, I was buying friends drinks out and about and looking like life was good. And it was for all intents and purposes. There was just no money. I had no car. I caught buses to all the record label meetings and everything else. And, and it was, you know, just your average, very poor 24 year old who, who was working really hard to become a, a rock star. And then, of course, as you hear in the last episode, it ultimately worked after very much hard work and probably a lot of luck. Um, I landed a big deal and suddenly had literally, you know, at least on paper was a, a millionaire. The money actually gets staggered the way it comes in. So I don't know that I ever had a $1 million check, but um, money was, you know, money was good. As it happened, my parents were in some financial trouble. I ended up buying the house um, that they lived in and, you know, uh, uh, solve those problems. And that was kind of an amazing experience. I kind of kept living my life, you know, for a long time. I, I didn't give up the apartment immediately or go out and do anything or start spending money or, 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 or doing anything uh, all that crazy. Um, you know, shortly after that, I got in a relationship that was a semi sort of high profile kind of relationship. And that brought with it all this other stuff. Um, and kind of the, the two things, sort of happening simultaneously just kind of catapulted me into this next level and it really just seemed like things were going well it seemed like my career was set I was gonna I was gonna be the next big thing I was I was going to you know New York City all the time getting flown around the country first class and and limos picking you up and all of this stuff but um I don't know. <laughs> At the end, it, 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 things sort of seemed to get confused and ultimately not go the way that I wanted them to. I, mean, I don't know how to transition into that. You, do you have any questions before I just start rambling? 
Yeah, this one thing I actually wanted to kind of backtrack on a little bit. We'll go on a little bit of a, a tangent before we get into the rest of it, but something I think I thought was worth getting into that uh, I thought it, it was, it seemed to be really, you know, it was really smart the way that you became a promoter instead of just trying to get on shows. Uh, before we get too much into the, uh, the deal and the aftermath there, um, what, <clears throat> how did you become a promoter? What did it take to, to make that happen? Um, well, initially, I, I mean, as I sort of said in the last episode, it was a bit of a lie. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't my, <laughs> my lie so much. It was my roommate Rick's lie. He said we had a band that we didn't have. And um, based on his reputation with the bar manager, she gave us a Tuesday night slot to do whatever we wanted. And we ended up, um, uh, we, we created a band and rehearsed the band in two weeks time and we started performing. And again, that's a story unto itself, which you can find in the last episode, but, but the band became very popular and it was, but I, again, I worked my ass off to do that. So Rick, my roommate and friend and partner with that project, he, he brought a lot of the sort of, at the time, I guess you could call it power. He had the relationships. He knew a lot of the people. I was brand new in town. I had just moved there. In fact, I don't know that I lived in Hollywood. I think I was still coming up from Long Beach. Um, and I don't know that I actually lived here yet when we first took on that gig. And I think I moved up like the next week or something like that. So I didn't know anyone initially. Um, but because of that hard work, you know, life, maybe I'll, maybe I'll come to a different conclusion someday, but so far it hasn't changed my mind. It's not that hard. Work really hard and, you, you, it works out, you know, it doesn't always work out exactly like you want it to, but momentum gets results. You can't do a whole ton of stuff in this universe without having some kind of a react, you know, creating some kind of a reaction. And if you're working really hard at sharing something really good, you find some sort of success, or at least that's been my experience. And we had this really great night, this really fun band. I worked really hard to meet people and get people to come down, as did Rick, and um, and the the night took off. And because of that hard work, and I was kind of the contact person for that band, I booked the other bands and made all the phone calls. Um, I got noticed by some other promoters and and venues that asked me to do things at their venues, and you know. Uh, value begets value when people see you're doing cool things they want to know you and talk to you and and partnerships are easily um struck and um yeah i I just started doing more and more stuff and the big one was the dragonfly um at the time one of the premier sort of rock clubs in la and um we did a friday night there it wasn't super long lived it was really successful initially and kind of petered out after a few months but when we realized you know we're going to be pulling 400 people a night to this place let's make some more money off of this and i ended up doing an after hours and that after hours persevered and i did that for a long time so this is you know may or may not have been a legal after hours uh, nightclub <laughs> at various locations around town. That was kind of a crazy story and experience. Um, I, that, yeah, I don't know if that's the whole story into itself, but, um, me running around with a, a crew of 
sort of bloods having my back as you know i partnered up with somebody who was very tapped in because it's a dangerous world running in after hours you know um a lot of money and yeah. and seedy behavior happening in illegal venues um and uh but i was this little white kid rocker dude you know partnering up with some really cool and interesting characters um doing this thing but and making more money a- a- off of these after hours with a longer lasting um club than than uh than i ever had with the dragonfly but anyway that's that's the long and short of it how how that happened um it happened through a bit of a fib and it was successful because of a lot of hard work okay cool so yeah so you didn't really set out necessarily to be a promoter it was just kind of an opportunity that popped up and then you just Yes. Kicked ass out of- <clears throat> yes. But as soon as I fell into that, as soon as that popped up, I saw like, holy crap, this is going to be great for me. I'm going to, I'm, uh, this is a fantastic opportunity to become more than just another musician, you know, um, having power, you know, as small as that was just being able to put people on a guest list or book a booking agents, other band, uh, that opened up doors for me. You know, I had A&R reps coming to the shows and of course I was buying them drinks and becoming friends with them and, uh, fast forward a couple of years and I had a lot of deep seated relationships in the city, but so I recognized it very quickly as an opportunity, but I didn't set out to find that opportunity. Um, cause, cool. cause I didn't know, you know, it never occurred to me that that would be a good thing to do. Um, but how, so how do we get on to the, the, <laughs> the, the downward slide of this whole thing? So, 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 what, what happened was basically I got signed. So Jimmy Iovine signed me, most powerful guy at the label, you know, very, very famous name, very powerful guy. Um, and he gave me this fantastic deal and it was great. He was, he was great. And it was not the story that you hear about. You, you hear these horror stories of, of record labels coming in and changing artists and, you know, forcing them to be something they're not. I kind of wish somebody forced me to be something I wasn't. I think Jimmy popped around once or twice when I was in the studio and, and said, said, you should have another upbeat song. And I said, Oh yeah, I am. And he said, great. <laughs> like that was the A&R guidance. And if there, if I do have any kind of a lament or not criticism, but just, you know, uh, something that is an obvious w- where things started to go south was I, ha- I thought it would be great to have this powerful guy as my shepherd over there. But what it meant is I had the busiest guy at the label as my A&R rep. And at the time he was doing something called farm club, which kind of foreshadowed things like American idol. Um, they were really actually ahead of their time. It didn't ultimately go where he wanted it to, but it, it, um, it was on TV and he was trying to take it public and it was a whole thing. Um, and so he was extremely busy. The label had recently merged, you know, when they acquired Geffen and A&M and all that stuff. And, and no one knew what the heck was going on. Um, and it took a long time for the album to come out. You know, the album was done within a few months of being signed, but it was another year or so before it came out. And during that time, there was a whole shift in music where at the, when I got signed, things like Beck and Sugar Ray and No Doubt were on the charts and my music fit in quite well. Um, my first album anyway, with, it, it, with that kind of stuff. Um, and then, there was this active rock shift and suddenly all that music was tanking, you know, no doubt had a, not a, not a flop, but by comparison, you know, instead of selling 14 million copies or whatever they had sold previously, it was, 
it was 1 million copies and Beck was flopping and all these guys were not doing well and Corn and Limp Bizkit and Suicidal Tendencies was back and Metallica was back and all these guys were dominating the alternative charts. So in addition to having a lot of, of lack of clarity at the label, um, you know, there was a shift in music, which we're all sort of vulnerable to when we're, when we're playing this very narrow, big stakes game that is the, the main mainstream music, um, I guess, or, or main, yeah, mainstream music industry. Um, and what else? There were some other, uh, yeah. So, well, we ultimately ended up needing to release at hot AC and, um, like adult contemporary essentially and pop. And so my non pop record came out against on the pop and hot AC stations the same week that, uh, Madonna dropped her new album, um, 98 degrees dropped an album, um, <laughs> and a bunch of huge artists at the time. And frankly, it just, it never really had much of a chance on top of everything. So my first single was a track called, uh, what was it? It was where's Bob Dylan when you need him. Why Clef Jean ended up doing sort of a, uh, Re, uh, what do you call it? A, uh, well, he basically reproduced the, he produced a version of the track, but then it was a bit of a departure from the rest of the album. That was a whole story into itself. Um, amazing to get to work with him, but sort of sideswiped by it. Like I just kind of got a call one day. Hey, Jimmy wants the Wyclef to do a track. It's going to cost a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> and so like, Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, and, and then he, he did it and it was great. But again, it was it was so different than the rest of the album that we ultimately didn't use it. And then Jack Joseph Puig uh, remixed it and it was all confused by the end of it. But but be, remember, if from the first episode, I had a track called Bisexual Chick that was this sort of radio hit um, um, some to some degree uh, without having a record label. And that's what led to the big bidding war. Ultimately. Interscope did not pursue it because things were slowing down and because I didn't have a record to follow. So Interscope had made the decision, hey, let's just put the brakes on this. You get in the studio, you finish the album, and we'll do it right when it's time to release the album. Simultaneously, I had a track called Back in 1999. The year was 1999, and it was supposed to be sort of clever that we were talking about the past, you know, prior to... um it being the past. And, and I was taking contemporary... Uh, at least in the music video, there were a lot of contemporary references being treated, you know, from the, being treated from the perspective of, of the very distant future with flying cars and everything. And there was supposed to be this, this weird, I don't know, cleverness to it all. And for that to, for that joke to sort of work, I really felt the album needed to be released in 1999, but things were too hectic at the label. It wasn't going to happen for 1999, but Jimmy, sort of tried to well actually it was it was two things that happened at once karen rackman um still a friend very well-known music supervisor very 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 talented um uh woman she was and i'm sort of left her out of the first part of the story she was one of the few people to genuinely show interest in signing me or getting helping to get me signed back in the early days when i was getting rejected by everyone she was at interscope at the time and brought me in and and from what i understand pitched me to uh either jimmy or tom uh oh. and it, and it and it never happened but she was a believer and it was actually karen who who called you know when the whole bidding war thing was happening saying hey guess what jimmy you know wants to talk to you and and ultimately brought me in and she was a 
big part of, uh, additional part of why I signed with them as well. Um, but she, uh, being supportive of everything and realizing that I was really pushing to get the album out and, and kind of getting lost in the shuffle over at Interscope, she was putting together a soundtrack for a movie called Mystery Men, um, with Ben Stiller came out many years ago. And she said, Hey, let's get you on the, on the soundtrack for this. And she even pushed for it to be a single. Um, and it didn't be, well, it didn't become exactly a single for the record, but it got released to specialty shows and they, they did sort of a fourth quarter push to specialty radio shows to see if they could get any traction on it. Um, and ultimately it didn't really get a ton of immediate traction. And so they, they kind of pulled back on it, but it never was a full blown single. It never got full, you know, support at radio, nor did they try to get spins at mainstream radio. It was just specialty. Um, and so when that, when that single, um, getting back on track, when the first official single, Where's Bob Dylan When You Need Him came out, no matter how many times I tried to refresh everyone's memories, they kept saying, well, it's your third single and it's not going well. I was like, no, 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 this is not my third single. Uh, Bisexual Chick was before you guys ever, you know, were even my record label and you put the brakes on it. Um, <clears throat> the uh, uh, back in 1999 was never released as a single. It just went to specialty. And this is the first time we ever, you know, went to radio and they did do a bit of a push. Um, they 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 went to. Uh, you know, they sent me on a radio tour across the country. I don't know, for two or three weeks. I went to radio stations everywhere and shook a lot of hands and they, and they spent money on it and they tried to get it, get some traction with it. And it got spins. Um, pardon me, but it didn't ultimately get the spins that we needed. And, and, you know, there were, there were even moments again, I mentioned I was kind of in a, a high profile relationship and they were, you know, some one radio station, a big one. Um, won't say which one, but we're kind of like, well, look, we'll, We'll we'll keep spinning this and we'll keep it in rotation all summer if you can get uh, your your partner to go and uh, uh, promote our our to a, make an appearance rather at our our big uh, summer festival and I was I didn't even ask you know I was like sorry that's that's I'm not doing that and and they said sorry we're not spinning it and you know so there were some things that kind of sucked along the way because that could have been the, if had I had I got into rotation at that station, it might've been enough to fan the flames of the track, um, and possibly turn it into something, but it was what it was. And when that single ultimately, you know, was finished and considered unsuccessful, um, instead of going after what I thought would have been the second single, the label really felt like, well, it was three singles. Let's move on to another album. And I went back in the studio and started doing, demos um simultaneously went through uh, a, a breakup of that relationship and then um and the demos were kind of eh, they weren't they weren't amazing um i turned they were okay you know but they, they weren't amazing i turned them in and didn't even get a have a conversation um i didn't have hey let's let's have a meeting let's listen to these let's talk about them i just got a call one day about a month later from my uh lawyer saying hey bad news interscopes dropped you and they're they're moving on so um so we're going to negotiate sort of a settlement because remember i had these firm albums where they had to pay me for for three albums firm 
uh, even if they didn't put it out, no matter how many I sold. And it was a lot of money uh, still on the table. Something like, I think they still owed me something like $1.1 million or something like that. They ended up, <clears throat> despite legally owing me that money, they could have taken me to court for years and made it so expensive and painful and that I ultimately settled for a lot less years later. Um, so at the, with, at the advice of, or the, at the urging of my lawyer, I accepted their settlement offer, which is something like $750,000, which is probably a record in its own right in terms of that's a lot of money to, you know, get fired or to go away. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, it, again, that, that was at least the silver lining there. The, the negative thing or the worst thing, well, again, double edged sword was I still had this massive publishing deal where I got, $500,000 so long as my second album, I think it was 550 actually, as long as my second album came out on a major label and that was firm. So it didn't matter if it sold two copies, if it came out on a major label, I had another half a million dollars sitting there from my publishing company. And that was too much money to just walk away from. Had that not been there, I would have gone back to the drawing board, re probably returned to what I was doing before, which was being this hungry, creative go-getter of a musician and just got back and re-engaged with the city. But instead of doing that, I, I chased the deal. It was all about the deal. Um, and I spent something like three years at least going out and trying to, I, I had gotten a deal actually with universal. Um, and I got some of that advance, but then as it got, uh, there was definitely some favor pulling involved with that deal. Um, and when it got a little closer to release, somebody higher up kind of pulled the plug on it and said, no, what are we doing here? No, we're, we're not putting this out. And then, uh, me and my manager, I think, <clears throat> you know, we're still friends, but at the time, due to so much stress being on, on the line from the situation, we had a big blowout and, and stopped working together. And that, uh, uh, led me to finding a new manager. And yeah, like I say, by the time, and he ended up getting me another deal again. I think many favors pull, pulled through a label called the Record Collection, which was a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. Um, and that was released, but again, there was no push on that. And as you can expect it with no push, it didn't do very well. Still spent a lot of my own money promoting that. I paid for the record myself, you know, probably between promotion and, and recording spent another $90,000 on that. I think that was just like, at least in terms of the radio promotion, it was like throwing money away. Um, nothing ultimately, um, you know, I got spins, but they didn't mean anything as we've all come to find out that, it takes, you know, you, you can't, you can't compete like a mainstream artist spending a fraction of what a mainstream artist spends. It's very, very expensive to ultimately land on enough mainstream radio stations to make a difference. And so, you know, that spending $30,000 on independent radio promotion and yet trying to compete on a, a major level and create that national tipping point was just an exercise in futility and nothing, nothing came from it. Um, and, uh, with the, me and my manager imploding, um, and him being really the guy to have sort of been the biggest cheerleader along the way, things kind of got pretty down for a while. I, I recorded another album that was, um, 
always always it was kind of independent and on the cheap and it was always meant to be the album that hey if i if i never make another album i've got to record these songs the way that they were originally intended to sort of be recorded when i started i was a guy who played most of the instruments and did this kind of i don't know grungy alt country you know neil neil young meets sonic youth kind of stuff mm. and and all kind of wanted to and i got caught up in a lot of different production sounds trying to chase these record deals and so i wanted to kind of return to that and i released an album called elephant graveyard and i had some friends that they were in the film industry and they wanted to start a record label um and they did and they put it out and you know great guys believed in me as well but they didn't know anything about starting a record label neither did i at the time and it did even worse. So yeah, the, it just kind of got worse and worse and worse. And I could go on, but you, you got any, anything occurring to you or questions that I might be forgetting to answer, um, if, about the, the sort of mainstream part of this? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's sounds like I made it, it must have been uh, a bit of an emotional roller coaster, you know, the whole thing. So I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, what that emotional arc was like going from, you know, dirt poor to being signed to this huge deal. And then, you know, everything, uh, you know, being dropped and then, and then everything going downhill and then to, you know, the point where, um, you know, things changed for you after that. Yeah. So I remember when it all happened, when I got signed and, and had all this great stuff, you know, new relationship, all this stuff coming into my life. And it was, it, it was truly transformed overnight, like where, where I was, like I said, sort of piss poor on the east side of Hollywood to secret entrances to the four seasons. You know, it was, it was a crazy transformation and hanging out with literally presidents and, 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 and King, so to speak. Um, and I remember kind of in my shitty little four, you know, $400 a month apartment. I remember, and this is, sounds kind of melodramatic and I'm not particularly religious or anything like that, but I remember, and it probably was melodramatic at the time as well, but dropping to my knees and just fucking, sorry, I'm swearing an unnecessary amount in this episode. My apologies. <laughs> um, you know, hands together, just looking at this guy saying, thank you so much. Like I was everything that I had ever wanted. You know, I've of, often said my whole dream as a kid was to just live behind the curtain of the music industry. And I got to do that. You know, I was, I was playing in the big leagues and I, I, I have that major label uh, album to my credit or two of them. And I'm in the pantheon of music history, no matter how small that mark may ultimately be. Um, and I, you know, I was on MTV and I did tour the country, um, over and over again. And I, and I did, I did, I did feel really, really good about all that, but, um, but it was, it was, it was um, amazing. Um, and when, and then it was like, and he taketh away, you know, it was, I, 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 that with, it was within 30 days, the relationship I was in at the time imploded. And then the record label called and said, Hey, we're out. And, and it was dark. And, you know, being just an emotional dude, I think the relationship probably tore me up a little bit more, actually, um, at the time. Just, you know, that that led to a lot of sort of mental confusion and depression and all that kind of stuff that took a long time to sort of sort out. Um, but it didn't help that I had no sort of career to kind of fall back on. And I was, yeah, I just kind of floated a little bit in 
and I still had money in the bank. So I don't know. I, and I was still young and I roamed around Hollywood doing the things that you do when you're young, um, drinking and, and partying and, and playing music and having fun. And, uh, you know, I still, I still would do the odd tour and the odd residency and I still performed, but definitely things kind of slowed down as I pursued, uh, the record deal and got focused on, on that. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was, it sucked. I think the, look, I'm not, not appreciative of the whole experience, even, even given how it turned out, I'm still, I still feel really lucky. Um, and I don't have a lot of seething resentment to all the different people that, you know, signed me and made promises and these kinds of things. The only thing that I wish at the end of the day is that there was some kind of a conversation, um, you know, given the promises that were sort of made about how I was this career artist, it seemed like it would have been appropriate to have a conversation and say, Hey, I need this from you or else we got to move on. Um, but that, that ultimately never happened. So I don't know. You yeah. do feel like a little bit of a commodity, um, at the end of the day, but again, I'm not really complaining. Yeah. I guess that's a, a cold lesson, huh? When, when, uh, people promise you all these things and talk to you one way on the way up and then treat you like that on the way down. You know, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not full of resentment. I, I, I don't have continued dialogue with any of these people. I never, I never heard from or spoke to Jimmy sort of ever again after that. But if I was to see him, I, I, I don't have resentment. Like, you know, he still gave me a fantastic opportunity and, and it was, it was, it was a good time. So I, I don't know. Like I said, who knows? You know, busy guy dealing with a lot of people and a lot of priorities. Yeah. So who knows if he even ever remembered the the promises, but we certainly remember the promises that are made to us. <laughs> um, one thing I want to ask you before we get into, you know, the uh, uh, turning things around and, and the uh, redemption story, um, there had to have been something. So, so going from having nothing to having, a ton of money. There must have been some ridiculous things that you spent money on. No, actually, no. I really? was, my, <clears throat> I was. I'm not a big. I mean, I like. I like to spend money on food and and expensive mm. wine and beer and things like that. But I don't. I don't. I'm not. Um, I'm not that. I'm not irresponsible with money. I bought my parents their house because um, they were, you know, they were in some financial trouble and and it was looking like you know they were going to lose it. Um, so that was where most of my money went, um, and, or at least a lot of it. Um, I bought a car, you know, that was the one big thing. Obviously remember I was catching a bus around town. Um, I bought a 1971 Mach one Mustang, which is, which is badass. still have it. <laughs> um, but you know, it was only at the time, 12,000 bucks, something like that. Maybe, maybe a little bit more. Um, and I uh, got my teeth fixed, <laughs> $7,000 worth of medical work later or dental work later. Um, and, uh, no, I think, I think the, the silliest thing I have ever spent money on was one day before a photo shoot in a post relationship kind of depression went and spent like $2,000 on a jacket from four, Se uh, <laughs> not from, uh, from Fred Siegel and kind of have ever since gone, why the hell did I do that? I don't even like this jacket. Um, but no, I never, I never really did anything silly with money. That's good. Um, so I guess not having wasted the money that kind of set you up to, uh, reinvest some for 
some of the uh, education that led to what you do now. So I don't know if you want to pick up there. Or- well, yeah. I mean, here's the thing. It, that sounds like a lot of money. So I think at the end of the day, between publishing and record deals, after I spent, you know, the the, the record itself cost me four hundred. Thirty thousand dollars to make, um, hundred of it going <laughs> straight to White Club, um, uh-huh. and and then on that second one, remember I paid for it myself. So there's another ninety thousand. There was probably tens of thousands on demos and studio time. And once you do have budgets, people know it, and the rates go up. And you know it's like it's like buying a room for a wedding versus a business meeting. You're gonna pay about uh-huh. ten times as much. Um, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, but uh, so I did reinvest a lot into the career and stuff like that. But even w- let's take that two point one million or whatever I made after, you know, you know, that I think that's I think that's what I, I'm going off of. I've, I remember hearing myself say that at some point. I didn't calculate that before this interview, but I think it was about two point one million that I made after expenses on that. You know, not including the four hundred thirty thousand that ultimately went to the that first record or, um, but. When you go and cut, you know, uh, so my manager's taking 20%, my uh, business manager's taking 5%, my attorney's taking 5%, so 30% gone right there. Then whatever's left, you know, 40% or something in that tax bracket's going to the government. And, and then the record labels don't just pay you, you know, well, actually, yeah, they pay a big chunk of it, but most of the time, you know, the publishing companies and the record label, they're not just giving you a check for $1.1 million. It'll be $200,000 upon turning in the album, $200,000 upon release, and and um, same with the, the publishing deal. It gets staggered and years go by, so you never really have this like, hey, there's a million bucks in the bank. I'll go invest it. There's What you have is, hey, there's $250,000 in the bank, and I don't have a job or any money coming in, so I better not invest that in a volatile stock market um, because I need to stay liquid, and instead you've got it in a money market account that's basically just keeping up with inflation, and you're spending that money, and then three years later, it's almost all gone, and another check comes in, and, and it sort of works out like that. So despite those big numbers, I never really sat on anything much bigger than a few hundred thousand dollars at any one time. And, you know, a decade passed um, and it just kind of gets spent. And I still had some money in the bank. Now, this, let's fast forward to about 2006 or 2007. Um when I put out, I think it was 2006, I had put out Elephant Graveyard, remember, on this independent label, and that that really was a couple of friends, um, and no one was really doing anything. And this is when MySpace was the big social media platform, and every musician under the sun, all we did was we bought these spam bots essentially and we spammed the whole planet saying (laughs) hey check out my music and we'd link to our myspace page or or if we really were um an entrepreneurial our website um and we spam a lot of people and we drive a lot of traffic but we never um you know we never really saw anything in terms of results. I don't know anyone who actually sold anything. You get a lot of MySpace friends and then MySpace imploded and they were all 
useless. And you have these friends, but no real ability to send them all a message like you do now with, say, email. So you really didn't have anything. And many people spent just their whole careers building up hundreds of thousands of MySpace friends and then and then had MySpace implode and they had absolutely nothing to show for it. So so I was doing that too and I also had nothing to show for it. And 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 sadly I had nothing to show for my Interscope deal either. So hundreds of thousands of dollars spent marketing me. I, I mean, like I said, I, I was on the radio, I was on MTV, I, I played Woodstock ninety nine, you know, I, I got in front of so many people and I never had a opt-in form on my website. I never pushed my um, mailing list because you just didn't really do these things or most of us didn't uh, at the time. And frankly, I wasn't marketing minded at the time and I was shy and didn't want to, you know, ask for this kind of attention. I wanted people to come to me. I thought I was special enough that they should and I just didn't do it. And so all of that, when all of that was said and done, when I ended up finally redesigning my website, and I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but but um, and, and getting Aweber, which is the email program that I use, um, when I finally did all that and transferred the, the few names that I had over, I had 60 people on my mailing list. So millions of dollars and and hundreds of thousands spent on marketing and and. All of these opportunities later, I had 60 fans. I truly was starting from scratch. None of it mattered. None of it was lasting enough to to carry over into any kind of a future career, which is just devastating because you feel like, hey, I've accomplished a lot. I'm I'm a rock star. I, you know, I don't care if I didn't sell a lot of records. I, I I've been there. I've done that. Um, I've played for thousands of people. You feel important, but nobody else sees you that way. Um, and, and it's really hard on the ego. Um, you know, that's all, that's definitely the, the biggest battle through all, all of that kind of a ride is, is managing your ego and being able to get back up and, and kind of go, Oh, well, um, you know, it's, uh, it's okay to, um, to start from scratch, but, um, the money was, going to dry out. I still had, a few, you know, I don't know what it was, a hundred, 200 grand in the bank. And, and, and I was okay. And the biggest part of that is I had the luxury of time to go and explore ways to make money, but I, I knew I had to make money and I did not want to get a day job. Um, that my ego couldn't have taken at that stage. What about, well, I had no skill. I didn't go to college. What was I going to do? I was going to uh, you know, go become a waiter or something. That's the only thing I had done is work in the service industry. And I just, I, I couldn't take that, um, to be honest at that time anyway. Um, and, uh, so I saw, you know, these flashy red headlines all over the internet and sorry, when I brought up the MySpace thing, actually, that's how it first started. I would see other people in these forums because the, the MySpace would, would, change their site and the bots wouldn't work anymore. And so you'd go into the support forums and you'd see hundreds or even thousands of other people saying, Hey, the bot's not working. What do I do? Um, and you'd realize, you know, they'd tell a bit of their stories in the forum and you'd realize these weren't musicians. These were, these were companies. These were people doing something on the internet. And you, you could see like somehow people are making money spamming all these people on, on MySpace. And I didn't know anything about it. And, and I didn't, you know, spamming people for a living was not my, my goal. Um, certainly I did it as a musician, but I think, I think musicians do a lot of shady stuff thinking that they're somehow above 
above it all because it's for a good reason or something. Cause I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm just spammed to death by musicians now uh, as a business owner. Um, but, uh, I saw the, I, I got very curious thinking, you know, somebody's making money out there uh, using the internet. And again, this is 2006. So the world's changed a lot since then. Um, at least in terms of our sophistication about how the internet works. And I would simultaneously see these flashy red headlines all over the web saying, Hey, buy my course and I'll teach you how to make millions of dollars. And I don't, I, I've told the story so many times that I don't want to get too redundant with my other like, presentations like music marketing blueprint and things like that, where I really get into that. But I, I thought, you know, I want to see what this is all about. And I bought a book on, it was an ebook. It's 200 bucks. It was on internet marketing and it was a paid advertising based strategy. So you get pretty quick results. I, it basically told me to pick an affiliate product on a site called ClickBank. Um, I picked an ebook. It was a recipe book, um, a clone recipe book, like cook, cook these foods like your favorite fast food joint or whatever. Um, I thought the sales page was interesting or compelling. And, you know, again, uh, 12 years ago, the things were a lot less sophisticated out there. So I picked that, I promoted it with some ads. I went, I spent 10 bucks or set a budget as 10 bucks on this is Google ads, went to sleep, uh, woke up the next morning and had 20 bucks. I'd sold a damn cookbook. I spent 10 bucks, had 20 bucks. So I made $10 in profit and I was floored, floored because it was like, <laughs> holy crap, this isn't all a scam. You know, we've all gone through that. You find some article, just go do this, go sign up for this website and do this. And then you'll make millions of dollars and then you do it and nothing happens. And you start to feel defeated. And it's not that these things are scams. I mean, I'm sure there are scams out there. Well, there are scams out there, but it's not that they're all scams. It's that it actually takes work and everyone's leaving that out of their, their flashy headlines. Um, and it takes value. You know, there's nothing for free. You, 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 people will be interested if what you have, it helps genuinely helps them. Uh, or you can at least convince them that it does, but it's a lot easier to convince people that you can help them by having something that can help them. So, you know, these simple solutions of promote a bunch of crap and, and do nothing and you'll make money. Th those don't work. But the idea of generating income in the way that these products and courses suggest is very, very, very real. Long story short, um, you know, I sold, I don't know, something like 800 of those damn cookbooks and, and that still didn't make me that much money, but I was making like 500 bucks a month for a while. And then I started my own business where I started selling a, a product. Uh, it was, well, I never talked about this, uh, but I, I sold the business recently. So I guess I can. It was e-cigs. E-cigs came along. They were brand new. A uh, friend said, hey, I got to tell you about this new product. I know you're into this internet stuff. I set up a site selling e-cigs. I sold $2 million worth of e-cigs. And, um, you know, and again, it, it didn't happen immediately. I'd been at the internet marketing thing for a good year and was still kind of treading water. A few hundred bucks a month was coming in. But finally, I had a real product of real value. And when with with that success under my belt, once that happened, and it wasn't that hard, I, I learned everything I could about SEO. I ranked my sites for certain keywords. I got a lot of traffic. I had a product that people were searching for, and they bought it. Um, but once I succeeded with that, it was all pretty clear, like, oh, this isn't hard. This isn't, you don't, you, you know, there's not some secret algorithm or trick. You just have to... You just have to have something people want. You know, there's this litmus test um, that I always sort of apply. If you had free rent in the in the most perfect location for a shop, 
and you sold whatever it is you're selling with all this foot traffic walking by each and every day and you didn't have to pay for that, would customers come in? Would you be able to make that into a business? Um, and if you, if you wouldn't, if you had a free rent right in, I don't know, in, in the Grove, you know, in Los Angeles, and and yet nobody would come in to ask about your service, then you don't have um, a business on your hands. But if, if you do, if you would, or people would, then chances are that you can succeed on the internet. And so things were going really well. Money was coming in. I bought a house in cash. Um, you know, like life was, was good. Um, and, but I was bored. I had no interest in e-cigs. I'm not a smoker, never was, you know, I didn't have any passion for the, for the product. Um, and I, I took customer service really seriously. And that was the biggest passion I brought to it was treating people well, um, and enjoyed that part of it, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. Um, I hadn't, I hadn't never embraced this idea that I was done with music. Um, but long story short, I had a friend, Billy Burke. Um, he was going to release, in fact, I'm working on a new campaign for Billy right now, but he was going to release his album and I didn't think it was going to do well because I think he was, he was too comfortable uh, or thought he was too comfortable in, in the big Twitter following that he had and thought it was going to sort of sell itself. And I didn't think that that was the case. So. I said, you know what? Uh, you got this fantastic opportunity. Let me, um, market this album for you. And he did. And, and I think we spent $400 marketing it and we ended up setting the all time single day sales record at CD baby. It was number one at CD baby for a few weeks. Um, he landed on billboards heat seeker chart and, and this was my first time doing this. And I was, I was floored, you know, I was like, holy crap, this works in the music industry as well. And actually I'm skipping a few steps where I had been using my own music. Um, I've been using my own career as a guinea pig and, and it was, and, and everything was working, but it was that first campaign that, that I really kind of went, you know, wow, I have something here. And I, I don't know if I'm getting too far off track, but it was kind of amazing how music marketing manifesto happened. What had happened was, I always say 2009. Truthfully, I wrote music, the first little ebook by that name. So MMM 1.0 in 2007. It was, it was before my initial success with the e-cigs and it was a simple book about list building, um, for musicians. And I put it out, but I didn't know any, I wasn't a great marketer yet. And I just, I didn't know launch. I didn't promote it. I didn't market it. Just put it on ClickBank and it sat there, but given how few products there were about the music industry at the time. I mean, nobody was doing this at the time, um, teaching musicians, this kind of stuff. There was like a couple of people and nobody was focused on the internet. Um, and, uh, given how little was out there, it would sell all by itself. You know, I probably sold 400 copies doing absolutely nothing, which isn't a lot. Um, but I, my, a good friend of mine was always like, dude, you, you got this great story as a musician you've got to you got to you shouldn't be selling e-cigs you should be doing this music marketing thing and i was like yeah yeah musicians they won't be interested in it. it's business and i don't know you know it's it's not a it's not a great market nobody wants to spend money i didn't have a lot of confidence in the market um and I thought, you know, I love teaching this stuff. I, I geeked out. On, I love marketing. I've enjoyed the heck out of it. And I wanted to, I wanted to share it with people. And so and whenever I'm passionate about something, I end up wanting, you know, to, I can't just be a fan or a student. I want to be a, a, a leader or a teacher. And so I, I thought, Hey, I'll be an internet marketing guy. You know, I'll, I'll be like the gurus that taught me and I'll teach internet marketing. 
and I hired my friend or I partnered up with my friend, Mike Kim, long life, lifelong friend, um, to be my JV manager. That means it was his job to go out and find a bunch of partners that were willing to promote the product. It was, it was an internet marketing course for a hundred bucks or something. And he was, he was going to go and find all these partners that were willing to email their list about the product and they'd get a cut and he'd get a cut and we'd make hundreds of thousands of dollars and it would be a blast. Um, but that didn't happen. So, you know, we got, he got like one or two partners, I think for all, for months worth of work, I made something like 7,000 bucks. And, and at that stage, remember money's coming in. So that was, that was just nothing for, for an immense amount of work. And he was embarrassed, I think, you know, that we're like, like I said, very good friends. And he was embarrassed that he was not able to get these partners. He's a great salesman and it just didn't work. The space was hard. People were cynical. No, people were extremely flaky and uh, we just couldn't get many partners. And, and uh, that, was that in 2009? Is that, that was 2.0? Uh, this went, well, this wasn't music marketing manifesto. This is my dream of becoming internet marketing guru guy. I was going to teach straight up internet marketing. So this probably was about 2000. Yeah, probably was about 2009. Um, and so without even telling me, my, Mike, my JV manager, knowing me well enough to probably know I'd be okay with it and frustrated with his lack of response in the internet marketing space, he went and just, uh, called, he, he Googled like music business or something like that and called the first phone number he found on a website and said that he gave his JV speech, but instead of being about this internet marketing product, he said, I represent this guy, John Ojaka, I'm his JV manager, and he's created a a book for musicians um, that teaches them about online marketing, and we'd love to partner up with you. You promote it to your list, and you get half of the profit. And this is a $27 ebook, and again, he did all of this without my permission. I was not planning on, I had no <laughs> designs on starting some business, you know, music marketing business. And, and he got a yes. And when I asked like, how big is your list? They're like, oh, 50,000. I don't even know what the site was, but then he called another person. They had a list of 20,000 and they said yes. And everybody was responsive because one, the music industry had no concept of affiliate marketing at this stage and no one was doing this. And it was just so easy by comparison to the internet marketing space that we just said, you know what, I should take this ebook that I wrote and update it. I'll turn it into a big video course. I had just had that success with Billy Burke. Um, I'll take that campaign, turn it into a course, and we'll see what happens. You, you go, Mike, you go see what you can do. And we did that and made, I don't know, four times as much money as we did on the internet marketing thing. The, the crowd, you know, these were my people. These were musicians. I spoke their language. I knew what they needed. Um, and I just absolutely loved it. I had returned to the music industry. It was so gratifying. Um, and I just said to hell with it. Um, this is what I'm going to do. And, and I, I, took the bull by the horns. I built it into a real business and fast forward. Th this was in late 2009. Fast forward. Now it's, you know, April of 2000. Well, I don't know if this will come out in April or May, but it's 2018. And, you know, there's 50,000 people on the list and just as many on Facebook. And, 
many thousands of people have come through the do- the doors and it seems you know every every month i'm hearing about a new student landing on some billboard chart and it's and now the space is very very crowded uh, this isn't some weird concept that i have to explain for the first time in fact i'm getting told all the time by people oh I've, I've, yeah i've heard i've heard about this and or you know some suggestion that they've learned it elsewhere um and i'm not original but um but it really, I really feel that, you know, I was one of the first people teaching this stuff on any scale. And now I think the independent space has changed. I think people understand these concepts and there really is a, a line drawn in the sand now. And it's only going to continue to, um, become more defined where, look, if you're a mainstream artist, if you, if you've got a lot of money to spend to try to achieve some, to, to try to create some national brand, or if you're a regional success that is on the cusp of becoming a national brand and you've got investors or a label or money to throw at something, then yeah, go the streaming route, give the money away and make your money off of shows. But if you're an independent artist who's going to develop, you know, or be able to re, uh, realistically maybe build a fan base of say 5,000 instead of 5 million, then you're far better off um, building a more intimate relationship with that, that audience and then monetizing that through direct promotions and getting people to actually purchase from you and spend money from you. And that's what MMM is all about. And that's what I've been doing. And, and, and it really works. And, and it's just, it's been just a a massive blessing uh, in my life. And I, I absolutely love what I do. And, and it keeps me in the music industry and I still make music. I've got another album in the can, although it has been in the camp for a while. I'm very busy with MMM and I need to find a moment to get it out. Um, well with MMM and family, but, uh, but had that all had, had I not, you know, and I'm now made more money as a marketer, um, than I ever did in the music industry. And I did well in the music industry. Um, and all of that came from, absolute frustration needing to wait for other people. You know, I couldn't do any of it without my manager or my lawyer or a record label and, or an investor or a booking agent or all of these things. And that sucked. There's nothing worse than the, the inevitable rejection that comes with waiting for other people. Um, to believe in you because, you know, they're, you're, you're just never gonna, get well not never but you're usually not gonna get the reaction you want it's kind of like banking on going viral you know you can't do that that's not a strategy that's that's a hope and pray strategy and 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 i like i like i like tactics you know i like you you know step one step two step three do it over and over again and you will see growth measure that growth and predict long-term results you know i like real hard brass tacks uh, tactics. And sorry, my phone is going crazy over here. Um, but, uh, and that's what MMM is. And I never would have come to those conclusions, never would have figured it out. And I'm pretty proud of the impact that I've had on many careers. And that never would have happened either if it wasn't for, for that, um, ultimate failure of a, of a, of a, of a major label career. Mm -hmm. Awesome. Well, uh, I, one other thing that I don't know if you want me to mention this or, or not, but another thing that I think will be uh, really cool for people to see at some point is the that you uh, videoed and, and did a documentary on this whole record deal experience. Uh, any plans to release that? 
Yeah. So I have a document. So my first album was called From There to Here. And there was also From There to Here, the documentary. And the, all the work, all the creative work I've done in my life, that documentary is probably the thing I'm most proud of. Like if there's one thing that my ancestors pass on to their ancestors, I hope it's that damn documentary because, well, frankly, it shows how hard I worked. Um, and that's the <laughs> stuff I'm most proud of. It, you know, talent is a, is a gift. And frankly, I don't, I'm not naturally talented. But, but work, you know, work is a decision and I worked hard and I'm proud of that. And it's, it's captured in the documentary. But, um, at the time in 1999, um, well, actually it was early 1999 when I got signed. So this would have been 1998. Uh, reality TV wasn't really a thing, you know, real world existed. Um, and I'm sure there were one or two other shows that I'm forgetting, but it, it wasn't a thing. And we'd never seen a record deal happen. And the few times we did, it was completely staged, you know, um, and yet we read about all these stories of, of, of our legends and how their careers happened. And I always wanted to make, initially it was, I want to make a, a self-deprecating documentary about being a struggling artist. Cause you know, I worked hard, but I had many friends that also worked hard and we'd get so excited because a friend knew a guy who knew a guy who was going to get your demo to the assistant at, at, you know, Capitol records. And you get so excited mm. and, and it meant so little. And I, I, I wanted to, and again, the industry's changed, you know, it was, it was still more of a, a mythological thing, these, these giant companies and, and the characters that ran them. And I wanted to do a documentary about that. So I was in the studio doing those demos for Capital and, um, that I mentioned in, in the last episode. And, uh, I had a friend who had a, he was my neighbor and he, um, had a video camera and I said, Hey, can I borrow your camera? And it literally was held together with a rubber band because um, it was falling apart and the battery didn't stay on anymore. So I had to hold it together with a rubber band. And I called another friend who I knew was a, a photographer and I said, Hey, you know, this is my plan. I want to, I want to film, I want to make this documentary. You want to come be part of it? I'll pay you in food. Um, and I don't know what'll come of it. <clears throat> and, uh, he came around and started filming for a couple of weeks. And somewhere in that process, the phone rang and turned on the radio. You're on the radio. And we ended up, um, capturing the entire record deal in real time, like on video as it happened. And you hear from all the club owners and the NR reps and everybody along the way. And it, it, it was shot on home video. So it's not particularly, you know, uh, high def or anything, but it, it, it's a great documentary. It ended up winning best documentary at, um, a, a festival that no longer exists. It was a Yahoo internet film festival. Um, it was part, it was an early film project for sites like, um, Adam films and stuff like that. And, uh, ended up actually getting screened a few times on MTV two back in the day. Um, and then just kind of got shelved again. Interscope wasn't focused enough on it. It was a documentary. They were focused on albums and I thought it was a fantastic tool, but not much came of it. The MTV two thing came through my relationships and, and, and it just kind of has been sitting on the shelf ever since. Um, but now with this audience, you know, with the music marketing manifesto audience, I, I do think it's something that people would dig saying. And I, I, I do plan on doing something with it because I have an album in the can. I'm yet, I'm yet to decide whether or not I want to release it, uh, through music marketing manifesto as sort of a, a big collective kind of movie night experience, or if maybe I want to save it to, um, 
tell my story as I set up the next release of my album, but uh, I definitely will share it one way or another with the MM audience at some point. I'd love to hear from people if they want to hear it. I definitely, um, you know, that would light a, f- or if they want to see it rather, that would light a fire uh, under my butt if that's something that interests people. Um, but yeah, yeah. It, it's good. Thanks. Yeah, I'm, I'm really proud of that. All right. So, uh, yeah, I guess this is a good time to wrap it up. Any, uh, any final thoughts you want to share about the, the whole record deal experience? No, nothing. I think, I think I said it. I hope, I hope this, this last two, uh, podcast episodes haven't, you know, just been an exercise in me talking about myself. Um, that's probably why I've not done this sooner. It's been fun. Um, I do love talking about myself. Um, but, uh, but, uh, you know, my hope is that sharing the story, um, I don't know, gives somebody some inspiration or maybe pick somebody up when they're feeling down because I've certainly, I've certainly run the full gamut and, and circle for that matter of highs and lows and, and failures and successes. And wherever I was down, there was a success to come. And wherever there was a success, there was a, there was a, a you know, um, uh, an ebb to follow. Um, uh, so, so do I get that right? Is an ebb when, and I'm thinking of ebb and flow is the ebb when things I, retract. Uh, I don't know. I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm not even sure. I don't uh, know. But there was, just, there was, I know a, one ebb, the others flow. Yeah. There was a valley to, to come, uh, to follow. Peaks and valleys. Yeah. There we go. That's a safe one. Yeah. So, um, so keep that in mind and, uh, you know, work really hard. And I think, I think of all the things that I've said in this whole thing, if, if there was one thing that I would highlight, it's. It's the, um, it's the fact it was the moment where somewhere a little while ago where I said like, look, if you, if you have something that is genuinely interesting, valuable, entertaining to other people and you work really hard to share it with other people, then you really can't not get momentum and that success momentum with, with, with any project that you care about is success. Um, how much success is hard, you know, that you, you can't really predict or guarantee. Um, you, you might find an audience of 100 people that just freaking love what you do and, and, and you change their lives and they change yours. You might find a hundred thousand or a hundred million people that love what you do and, and, and you change their lives and they change yours. But it really doesn't matter so long as, you know, there is momentum. Um, and if, if it's good and if you work hard, um, you know, having a strategy, um, helps having some kind of a blueprint to follow. And certainly that's where I like to think I come in with my products with the music marketing manifesto and the insider circle and the rest of it. But, but it's, it's not that big of a mystery. This, this world. All right. Okay. Well, I guess I'm, I'm waiting for you to wrap up, but it's not your show, is it, Scott? So I should probably wrap up. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, well, I guess, I guess this one can be your show, but, um, but you know, again, just thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks for enduring me talking about myself for two whole episodes. It's been fun to share. Um, if you do enjoy this show, then, then do me a favor and head on over to iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you listen to uh, podcasts and leave a rating and review those things really do help um and as i mentioned earlier in the show if you are uh, in if you are in need of help and not interested in doing this stuff yourself and i do really recommend you do this stuff yourself um 
learn, learn how to market your own music and take the bull by the horns. But if for whatever reason you don't have the inclination or skill or interest or time to do that, then uh, get in touch about our new agency, DTFI. We're going to be taking on our first 10 clients. Uh, well, as we speak and once those slots, and I know a couple have already filled up once those slots are filled, um, you know, the, the, the roster is going to be closed for a while. So get in touch if that's something that, that interests you. If you would like, uh, myself and my team to build, uh, an MMM funnel or, uh, handle your next record release, get in touch. All right. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for being here. Thanks everyone for listening. Um, yeah, until the next one, take care. Thanks for listening to the Music Marketing Manifesto podcast. If you'd like to learn more about how you can market your music using the direct-to-fan strategies discussed on this show, then head on over to musicmarketingmanifesto.com and sign up for your free copy of the Music Marketing Blueprint. Once again, that's musicmarketingmanifesto.com.